0: If I leave this earth and having had done one thing, it's to push this concept of permission to feel, right? That this idea that we are feelings, creatures, and beings that, and we have to honor and cherish those emotions and use them wisely to achieve our dreams. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world.
1: Hi all, and welcome to the podcast. Today we're speaking with Mark Brackett. Mark is the founder and director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and a professor in the Child Study Center of Yale University in the United States. He's the lead developer of RULER, an evidence-based approach to social and emotional learning that has been adopted by over 2,000 uh, pre-K through high schools across the United States and around the world. He's been a researcher for over 20 years. uh, Mark has focused on the role of emotions and emotional intelligence in learning, decision-making, creativity, relationships, health, and performance. He's been published extensively, also consults regularly with corporations such as Facebook, Microsoft, and Google on how they might integrate the principles of emotional intelligence into employee training and product design. He's also the author of the number one bestseller and only recently published book, Permission to Feel, Unlocking the Power of Emotions to Help Our Kids, Ourselves, and Our Society Thrive. Of course, these questions have never been more important than at this particular point in our history. Uh, Mark and I first met during a week on fellowship together at Salzburg Global Seminar. And Mark, it's an absolute joy to be speaking with you once again. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Luca. So of course, there's a lot happening in our world right now. And we should always start with that key question that I think you bring through all of your work, which is, how are you feeling?
0: Yeah, well, I've decided that I asked that question. I don't like to get asked that question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Uh, but, you know, all kidding aside, um, I'm, you know, I've, I've been saying lately that I have, like, background feelings mm. and, like, foreground feelings. Like, my background is sadness anxiety some anger um but my foreground is like right now I feel excited and pleasant um and uh like I'm also thinking of the future and I'm quite optimistic and hopeful so that was a lot for one question
1: sorry (laughs) no (laughs) it's a great point though and I think it just speaks to in some ways the complexity of, of our emotional worlds and how we unpack that in a powerful way uh I feel really, well, I mean, again, that's an interesting piece around foreground and background of emotions, but I'm pretty enthusiastic, uh, not least of all, just to be having this conversation. But, you know, there's also just a lot happening right now for everyone, I think. And this is, you know, I'd love us to unpack some of these things around, you know, the collective overwhelm of the pandemic, of, you know, some of the things that this crisis has not just disrupted, but revealed about the way our societies work. Um, so to, to get into that, I'd love you just to share what, what that big question is that you've been exploring most through your work, because of course it's more relevant than ever before.
0: So I think, you know, we have launched a lot of studies in the last couple of months. Um, one out of curiosity and two out of figuring out ways that we can be helpful to people And so what I can tell you is from studying now, you know, well over 15,000 people from educators to people in the workforce is that, you know, our nation is filled, at least the United States with anxiety. I've never seen so much anxiety in my entire life. Um, When we look at children, it's a little bit broader. It's frustration. It's boredom. It's anger. Um, and some positive emotions too. Mm. But, you know, for the adult population, the number one word um, for educators is anxiety. The number one word for parents is anxiety, which is different than it was a couple of years ago. It was stressed and frustrated. But it's one big pool of anxiety right now.
1: Tell Tell me about, give me a background into, you know, this idea of being an emotion scientist. And it's something you speak about a lot in permission to feel what just take us through permission to feel, why do we even need permission? You know, where, how have we gotten to this particular point in our schools and in our society at large?
0: Well, I think that, you know, we are a society broadly speaking, you know, include your country, Australia, in this, in that we are phobic of feelings. And I think for many of us and for men in particular um you know to experience anxiety right you're weak mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right and that means you're not gonna be able to take care of me dad uh it means that you're not strong and tough you know thick skin and so i think that those ideas have persisted for centuries um and we're at a place now where um that denial of emotion is potentially going to just kind of implode uh and I think so it's a big question for me because it's actually the title, you know, that my book title is permission to feel. And when I was writing the book, some of the editors and even my agent was saying things like, well, why don't you call it like emotional intelligence for leaders? <laughs> and um, I was like, cause that's not like, that's been written already. And it's, you know, those books aren't so interesting anyway. <laughs> um, I want to call it permission to feel. And so um, they're like, well, you gotta convince us that, you know, we don't see people like, you know, in the airports, you know, buying like a, a man like executive sitting in the airplane reading a book called Permission to Feel. I said, well, maybe not yet, but yeah. we're gonna go there. Because until we acknowledge that we have not given ourselves or the people we love, uh, even the people we don't love so much, the permission to feel, I don't think the skills matter. Mm. Right? So I think that we have to acknowledge that we are feeling creatures and that all emotions are information. There's no such thing as a bad feeling. Even now, you know, I'm more anxious than I've ever been in my life. And I, I, I have the anxiety gene. Um, but, you know, it's the mindset around anxiety. And so I can go on and on it, but I won't. <laughs> no, I want you to. I mean, so,
1: uh, there's often this, this idea that we are, uh, you know, logic and rationality, you know, and in some ways market economics have kind of have been winning the kind of wrestle, you know, the idea that we are thinking beings that have these kind of, you know, problematic things as emotions as opposed to us being emotional beings that think. And so, you know, what are we first and what's that foundation? I think you lay out through all of your work how interconnected these things are. And unless we can nurture our emotional selves we, we can't actually be effective as leaders, as partners, as educators, really in any role. So, what do what do we know categorically about, about the role of emotions?
0: So, my argument has been that there are five reasons why we should all care about emotions and feelings. And the first is their inextricable link to our attention. So, for example, like, if you were bored with me and I'm bored with you during this conversation, like... I'm going to be like, Oh wait, say that again. Well, I'm sorry. What was your question? Yeah. Yeah. And if you get bored with me, I'm going to be pissed. But yeah, um, <laughs> uh, my point is that, right. We learn what we are made to care about. Hmm. And we are experiencing emotions all day long. You know, from the moment we wake up to the time we go to bed in every classroom and hundreds of emotions just in one classroom. Hmm. And so we have to know how kids are feeling because I was a kid by way of example, talking about attention and learning. um, It may be hard for you to believe, but I was a failing student. I was a C and D student. I hated school and it wasn't because of my intelligence, obviously. Um, It's a joke, but it was because of the fact that I was a bullied kid who was afraid of a shadow who could give a darn about any of the content because I was feeling unsafe and I had poor relationships and I was afraid of going from class A to class B. The last thing I'm thinking about is like learning a content. And I think if we don't understand that as teachers, then we are not doing our jobs. Um, The second is decision-making. We like to think that we're rational creatures, that everything is logic, but we know from research, both my own and others, that emotions leak into all of our decision making, you know, I don't know about you, but like being cooped up over the last couple of months here at home, I love my partner, and we've been together for 25 years, but like we have not been together this much in 25 years, yeah. and like it's like we're in the hallway. Do eye contact, no eye contact, do we say hello? Do we have lunch together? Do we skip lunch? Do we like walk the other way? Um, and this is someone who I love, yeah. um, but it's like a lot um and, and so i tell you that because like a little bit irritable once in a while like kind of getting on each other's nerves like who's going to cook tonight who's not going to cook who's going to clean up and um and then i'll go i'll be irritated and i'll get onto a zoom meeting and someone will present their research idea to me and i'll be like ugh terrible and it has nothing to do with that person's ideas yeah right it's because i'm bringing in my irritation And I'm not checking in with my feelings. I'm not saying, Mark, you got to separate your irritability about, you know, home life and now come in. So we know from research that happens. Mm. Um, The third is relationship quality. I'm going back to my mother-in-law has been with us. She was supposed to be here for two weeks back right in the beginning of COVID for a wedding. Uh, She's from Panama. Mm -hmm. Um, She's been here now five months. And um, just to give you a glimpse into our relationship, which is usually very positive. The other day, she's like, if I could walk back to Panama, I would. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, the door's open. Um, and and then we've had some arguments about things. We have two puppies. Mm-hmm. Um, we got COVID puppies to, uh, <laughs> as our strategy, which are adorable little things. But she's like controlling about what they eat and when they eat and how much they eat. And I'm like, all right, you got to, you got to come down with the food situation here. And anyway, so you can imagine. Yeah. And the point is, is that now after dinner, she like locks herself in her room. (laughs) She doesn't want to watch TV with us at night and it's all feeling right. She's like done with me. And so what we say is that emotions are signals to approach or avoid. Mm -hmm. And when you're experiencing a lot of strong, unpleasant ones, it typically means avoid what I'm gonna say though is that when it comes to adult child relationships, it's always approach, no matter what. Interesting. And that's tough for people because you get triggered by your kids. But the signal is always approach, never avoid. Yeah, sure. So. The fourth one is mental health. That are, you know, think about it, all emotions in their extreme can become diagnoses. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of fear can lead to panic attacks. A little sadness can be despondency and depression. I think importantly when, with regard to emotions and health is that like, it's all these factors that come together. So for teachers, we did this research, which shows the culture of their school, meaning like, uh, you know, you know that as you were, you were principal, yeah. right? Yeah. So like that feeling when you walk into your school, like I want to be here. I don't want to be here. People get along here. People mm-hmm. stink here. Like that feeling drives the individual's emotions. Like I'm stressed out. I don't want to go to that. toxic environment Mm -hmm. and that in turn affects your sleeping and your um depression and your anxiety so all these things are constantly all inextricably linked and i think we have to just acknowledge that and the final one to me is creativity um, and our you know our success in such that what we argue is that emotions are the fuel of creativity but our emotional intelligence determines whether or not that creativity leads to a product Mm. because life is filled with disappointment. I'm sure on your journey to be in your career, my journey, I can't tell you how many educators have told me like, get out of my face. There's no room for feelings in my school. Wow. Um, And like, if I just allowed everyone to have power over me and just like believe what they said as the truth, I'd be crushed. I would be nowhere. I would just crawl up in a ball and cry all day. So, like, part of the work is, like, sifting through the messages and saying, wait a minute, that's your reality, not my reality. And thank you for the feedback, but, like, Dad, my father loved giving feedback, but, like, you know, like, I don't know, your credibility in this department is not so high. So. <laughs> but, like, yeah, that's the, that's the complicated aspects of this work.
1: I, I really, I'm quite... Buoyed by the idea that these are learnable skills and therefore, you know, teachable. And a lot of I mean, a lot of your focus has been how how do you acknowledge the key role that emotions play in, in learning outcome, in, frankly, in thrivability, just in, in any form. Um, but so when when you've approached, you know, superintendents or directors of education, principals, educators that have said, I don't need emotions, or even in the corporate space, you know, I, I remember you telling a story once about some, uh, some kind of the old school methodology and mindset of a, of a medical faculty once where they said, mm-hmm. we don't do emotions here. We're, we're surgeons, you know, <laughs> something like that. Right. Like, what, exactly. How have you, how have you brought them on side or effectively just opened up doors of possibility for them to come to realizations about, you know, frankly, their own experience of, of their work and their world?
0: Well, I tell them that they can be successful, but they're going to die very lonely. <laughs> just kidding. Um cuz who wants to be around people like that? Oh. <laughs> the um, I go back to those five things that I just mentioned to you cuz I always tell people you know that you're not here to hear my opinion. You know mm-hmm. like honestly, you know I have strong opinions about things but that's not what you want to hear. Yeah. What you want to yeah. hear is what does the science say about the role of emotions in decision making in relationships and health and performance. And so, for example, we have other research which shows that the emotional intelligence of a leader predicts significantly how people feel in the organization. And then, if you know that emotions drive creativity and performance and decision making, mm-hmm. then you start really thinking well, I've got one department here that's got like a leader that's like emotionally bankrupt, mm-hmm. I've got a leader over here who's got a really skilled in emotional intelligence and then this team feels demoralized and they have low inspiration and a lot of frustration and a lot of burnout and a lot of dissatisfaction and this group here feels inspired and connected and valued and appreciated and mm-hmm. excited mm-hmm. and then you know what the research shows about how those emotions lead to creativity and decision making and you start saying to yourself how could i not be taking this seriously mm. so to me it's always through the science You know, I do, you know, sometimes the stories help
1: because people
0: like anecdotes and vignettes. But um, for anybody who is resistant, what I tell them is that that's not based in science. Your opinions are your opinions. Um, But what research shows is that when schools, for example, do this work well with quality, with fidelity, like great things happen for kids. Mm -hmm. So, If you're telling me you're not interested in it, then you're telling me that you're denying children, right? A set of skills that is going to help them, right? Achieve success in life. And Mm -hmm. if that's where you want to go, fine. I have a little bit more chutzpah now, um, just because I have no patience for people who are not on my emotions matter bus. (laughs) 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 Um,
1: I'm sure you're formidable in those, uh, a disarming perhaps might be an even better word, you know, uh, And so I just want to just kind of, you know, all of us carry our own stories because partially, you know, us coming to this idea of the role of emotions is not just the new skills for the new economy, but also the way that we potentially can create, you know, more equitable societies, um, ones in which we can empathise and understand that we are interwoven in this fabric and the kind of cult of the individual uh, will not get us to where we want to be. How... What's what's your what's been your journey, Mark, to this particular point? You know, and you're quite open about this in your book as well, but, you know, and you speak about Uncle Marvin in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, um, many of us have had these amazing mentors that have brought us, you know, into this kind of type of understanding, and it seems to me that Uncle Marvin was, as an educator, was just ahead, ahead of his time, really, in trying to do this work. Um, so... Just, just talk to me about why, you know, the role that he played and, and how that's influenced where you are right now.
0: Yeah. So, as you know from my book, I had a trauma in my child. I was abused as a kid, as a young child by a neighbor, um, which was horrific, mm. you know, for many years. It wasn't just a one-time incident. And so you can imagine what it feels like to be a six-year-old, seven-year-old being sexually abused by an adult male, in their basement, you know, and being threatened. Like you can't share this or I'll hurt you or your family will be hurt. And then I had two lovely parents. My, I know my parents loved me, but you know, my mom had a lot of anxiety and she was worried about everything. My father just had a lot of anger. Um, so his mantra was like, toughen up. And my mother's mantra was, don't tell me I'll have a nervous breakdown. Um, so I learned very quickly, you know, like you're on your own kid. Um, which wasn't a good place to be when you're experiencing so much pain. Mm. So where do your feelings go? They go to self-hatred. They go to eating disorders. They go all over the place. But I was blessed that when I was around 11, 12, my mother's brother, who was a middle school teacher in New York, was going for a master's degree on the weekends in New Jersey where I lived. And he would stay with us and we'd sit in the backyard and he would just talk. And for whatever reason, you know, um, he was the one person that I could confide in Mm. and who asked me that question that you asked me at the opening of this podcast, which was, you know, so how are you feeling? But unlike anyone else, he didn't keep talking and he just listened and he had a very, you know, compassionate kind of stance and expression. And I just let it all go. And then he didn't tell me, like, get some grit and toughen up, or don't tell me, I can't, oh my God, what happened to you? And he didn't freak out. He just listened. Mm-hmm. And then he said, Well, let's get through this. What are we gonna do? And what do you need? And and it was the beginning of my journey really of healing. It also though, just by way of kind of Um, coincidence he would ask me to type up lessons that he was doing um, in his classroom around feeling words that he was introducing through his social studies uh, lessons and so Uh we talk about words like alienation and elation and really cool words and then we'd share our experiences around these words and normalize them Mm -hmm. and so I you know dedicated my book to him because he was the adult who gave me the permission to have those feelings and Mm -hmm. not judge those feelings and You asked me about the term emotion scientist versus emotion judge earlier. And when I was writing my book, I was thinking, okay, so who are these people that give people the permission to feel? Mm -hmm. And I realized that there were these emotion scientists in my childhood, like my uncle who were open and curious and, you know, um, had a growth mindset around like, this is, you're not doomed because of this abuse you're not doomed because you're sad you're not doomed because you feel alienated and isolated like there's a way out of this and we can do this together Mm -hmm. and then there were the emotion judges who were like why are you so angry all the time and you know like bottle up your feelings and and so i see that everywhere i go now you know with families and um who want their kids to be perfect or don't understand you know their kids pain And so I credit Uncle Marvin with giving me um, that permission. And the long story short is that, you know, by the time I got through middle, I got through middle school finally um, with a lot of his help. Um, And then high school was okay for me pretty much. I was still, I was, um, I always knew I was gay also, which added complexity to this Mm. because the emotion judges were telling me I was gay because of my abuse, um, which was also a layer of, um, that for a kid to like process that and the self doubt. And like, I was like, I don't think so. Cause I think that guy's disgusting. And I don't think that's homosexuality. And, mm-hmm. but like, it's hard to do that as a kid by yourself. Um, and then I, in my early twenties, I went, you know, I was in college, graduated and I was in therapy and I'm starting to read these health, self help books about motivation and emotion. And I'm like, shit uncle Marvin got it all right. And so I, my career began when I asked my uncle to come out of retirement and we wrote a curriculum together back 25 years ago. And that was the beginning of me just thinking about my childhood, but also thinking about what skills I learned from uncle Marvin, what the world was going through in terms of this emotional intelligence work and social emotional learning. Mm. And so I started with my uncle and then we failed horrifically (laughs) because he was like a 65 year old retired teacher. And I was a 25 year old know-it-all something. Um, And it took us a long time to figure it out. And then, you know, one thing led to another and led to, you know, opening a center at Yale on emotional intelligence and honestly recognizing that this is never about one child or one teacher. It's about culture, right? It's about, Systems. It's about policies. It's about belief systems, and it's about skills. That's fantastic, Mark. Uh, And
1: it's—I mean—it sounds like to me that Uncle Marvin really enabled you to have an emotional education. It wasn't something taking place as part of your formal education at that point in time, and obviously that seems to me to still be this disconnect that that many educators and leaders are still grappling with. You know, how, so my question to you is, how do we centralize this work, not least of all because of the current disruption around the world, where it's more important and urgent than ever before, you know, Um, but even before COVID, we had the World Health Organization already saying that, you know, depression will be the greatest global burden of disease by 2030. It's already the largest, um, Mm -hmm. largest source of disability. You know, so how, in what you've seen, and, and Ruler might come into this answer, but You know, how do we centralize not just an academic education, but a social and an emotional education in a way that young people are actually empowered to step into their emotional abilities?
0: I think that we have to change educational policy and make it required. I, I often, my other, the other thing that helped me get through my life was I became a martial artist. And so I studied a Korean martial art, after when i was 13 and i ended up getting a 5th degree black belt and having a studio for many years and the so i say like wouldn't it be amazing if everybody got a black belt in emotional intelligence or social yeah. emotional learning and that means that we have to figure out across children's development right what does it look like to be an emotion scientist right in kindergarten mm. what does it look like in year 1 in year 2 in middle school and high school and college because obviously our emotion system is inextricably linked to our cognitive system. So you're not going to teach a four-year-old like alienation, right? You But sad, lonely. Um, you're not going to teach, you know, jubilance, you know, nobody even uses that word anyway. <laughs>
1: Great <way laughs> <of that. laughs>
0: You know, it's a good word to know, right? It's fun <laughs> yeah. to write about. Yeah. But um, the, my point is that it's developmental. Mm. And so, It's got to be taught understanding how children develop in social, emotional, and cognitive context. And then finally, um, it never can stop. And I think this is the hard part. Like, I think to myself, God almighty, I'm 50 freaking years old, and I've been studying this shit for 25 years. Like, I should be like, aren't I like the feelings master? And then here I am trapped in this home for four months. And, you know, my mother-in-law wants to move out of here. My partner the other day said to me, are you sure you're the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence? (laughs) And I'm like, on paper. Um, And so I'm still learning. Yeah. Because life brings with it so many surprises that we may not be prepared for. And so, like, anxiety means something very different for me now, that I can't visit my family and hug them, right? That I don't go to work. That I, you know, um, so my point is, A, it's got to start, if I had it my way, in the womb. Um, (laughs) And it's got to have, we need embedded curriculum that supports children in learning these skills and the adults who are raising and teaching them across their development and then we're going to have to continuously practice for the rest of our lives and just accept the just accept the complexity of it and then it doesn't become burdensome it just becomes part of this is what it is if you if you
1: were to look forward into say 2030 and we're looking at what success you know what a school a university uh an organization that's thriving you know what would that what would that look like beyond having, you know, in a school context, you know, policies and curriculum and culture, you know, what, you know, what, what is the possibility? What is the future of learning as, as you would understand it through your work?
0: That's a tough question on the spot. Um, what I want to say is that it's helping people to navigate their social and emotional lives in ways that help them have greater well-being, make better decisions, have the best possible relationships, um, have perspective-taking skills, the ability to collaborate and work together to achieve their dreams and make the world a better place.
1: Mm. Easy, <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is I think you know we have you know the. The counter example to the future of learning is what's the past of learning? Like, where have we come from? And, you know, what do schools feel like right now and how liberated are the adults in them in the work they do to try to unlock the potential of the young people they work with? And I think that's, if there's anything that I've learned from, you know, our conversations and and our work across social-emotional learning with Karanga, it's it's been that the future of learning really is at the convergence of the social, the emotional, and the cognitive and we still haven't worked it out that we still kind of amplify the cognitive outcomes as if they are the be all and end all without realizing that it's an interconnected
0: field. I perhaps. agree with that and I was thinking the other day, you know, I work at a prestigious university, it's very competitive. It's you know, it's hard to get into. Yeah. And you don't have to demonstrate your ability to get along well with people really right to get in you have to have high test scores and have good grades and you know done something special whether it be playing an instrument that never no one ever heard of or something like that um and it's important you got to they're good skills but then you get to college and you have a roommate who may be different than you are and you don't get along very well and then you're i think about the people that you know work in our center some of them you know, they come right from college and then they have to work with people and they have people on their teams who disagree with them. What do you do? Like, and they're like, they come to me like, I don't know, like my, the person I hired doesn't agree with me. I'm like, okay, so like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> but like, it's uncomfortable. yeah. And it's yeah. like, they don't know how to deal with the feelings. And how do I give the person feedback? And then they think it's a trigger. And then this is this. And, and like all that social and emotional you know, is like the umbrella for the good stuff and the productivity and the cognitive stuff to happen. Mm. And so I think that what happens is that we wait too long to try to do it. And I find this in my work when I interview like high school students, even their brain is like, I don't care. I I, I get your stuff, Mark, but like, this is not what's going to get me into Yale. And then I interview the Yale students and like, you know, in my class, they're, you know, they're not really ready for my class because they haven't thought about this stuff. They've never never, never been asked, how are you feeling? Mm. And so then they say things like, I didn't need emotional intelligence to get into Yale. And I say, well, you're going to need to get out. Um, (laughs) And then they say, and after the first few weeks, they say something like, I get this stuff, but I got to drink the red bulls and do the drugs and pull the all nighters. And just to get into law school. Mm. And then I meet with the law school students and the medical school students who I've taught and they're like, when I get my residency and then the residents tell me when they get their placement and then they're 40, 50 years old, you know? And, you know, I've worked with a lot of doctors in my career and many of them are just very unhappy. Mm. You know, I, the residents that I work with, you know, they feel meh. They don't have that spark. And I think part of it is that they have just been on this like road to being experts in one thing and they've left their social emotional lives behind. Interesting. On this journey that
1: you've, you've been on, what, what is perhaps the biggest unanswered question? The one that you're still ruminating on, you know, what's kind of on, on the horizon for you in terms of your inquiry?
0: My biggest fear is that are two things. So I have two fears. The first is that people are going to never let go of their quick fix mentality. That it's like the next thing, the next thing. And no, it's not great. It's mindset. No, it's not mindset. It's mindset, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, they just like, they they get like sucked into these like single constructs as being the answer to everything. It's gratitude. Everybody be grateful. Um, and you know, it's like gratitude is good, but like, it's, you know, how much, you know, it's you know, the limits you know, I can't think of anything I'm grateful for. I've done it like for 10 years. Like I'm grateful. Um, stop asking me what I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm joking about that, but my, you get my mm-hmm. point? Yeah, it's like, we get fixated on happiness, great gratitude, mindset, bread, mindfulness. Everything's the answer. So, I feel like we've got to get rid of that mindset. And the second, which is related to the first, is that we're not going to be willing to create the system, particularly in education, where it becomes a permanent part of education, which means that the implementation of this work is always going to have ebbs and flows and ins and outs. And it's not going to be this like little layer and, you know, critical piece that is permanent.
1: Yeah, we haven't talked about ruler. I think we should just explore that because I, I, the reason I love sure. it and I, I share it through my work is that it provides such a clear example for how we can centralize the role of emotions in classrooms and, frankly, in in companies and organisations, in in any work uh, where we're working with teams. Just take 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 yes. us through ruler yeah. and, and and the idea of constructs. You said the word construct. You know, I've learned a lot from you about constructs. Um, so to give, weave into this answer, as I'm sure you'll be masterfully able to do, you know, what, what are constructs and how do they kind of fit together in, in this world of kind of emotional intelligence?
0: Yeah. So let me put this in like the flow of things. So I believe first we have to give ourselves and everyone else the permission to feel. Mm-hmm. Then I think we have to become emotion scientists and not emotion judges. And understand the science of emotion and why the emotions matter. And then at that point, we can start saying, All right, how do I use my emotions wisely? And that's where ruler skills come in, right? Which are these discrete but yet interrelated skills that help us to make meaning out of our feelings and emotions and use them in a way that's gonna be helpful. So R is recognize emotion and self and other. So being aware of my own physiology and my cognitions and my experience in the world, being aware of other people's facial expressions, body language, vocal tone, behavior. Recognize that we're very biased, uh, that we sometimes think we know what other people are feeling based on how they behave and what they say and do, but we never really, really know until we ask them. The you is understanding emotion, that has to do with what, what makes us feel the way we do. And again, these are all constructs that have come to us right through language and, you know, history, but um, understand that fear is a, as a construct that's around impending danger and mm. sadness is about loss. And, you know, joy is about achieving something and, Anger is about injustice and really deeply understand those emotional themes, which can help us label our emotions better, which is the L in ruler. And then you think, well, is it a lot of anger? Is it a little bit of anger? Is it a real big injustice? Am I enraged or am I just peeved or irritated? And then, so the R, the U and the L of ruler is all about making meaning out of mine and your experience. It's just purely... Like, what am I feeling? What is it? And then the E and the R of ruler have to do with what we do with those feelings. So do I tell you how my, you know, what I have shared my true story with you, but I didn't feel comfortable. Right. Because there's interpersonal dynamics that go into whether or not I feel comfortable sharing my feelings. Um, there's personality. There's culture. Um, there's race. God only knows we know that there is a racial barrier in terms of black men in America, especially being able to express their strong negative feelings, Mm -hmm. right? It can get them in major trouble. It can cause death. Yet I have the privilege as a white male to talk about and be angry. And so that brings up other dynamics in terms of who gets the permission and what are the structural things that we have to change in order for there to be equity in terms of who gets to express? And then finally there's regulation of emotion which is you know at the top of the hierarchy because it has to do with the like the anxiety. And so firstly right the mantra of ruler is all emotions are information. So anxiety is not a good or bad, it's information. Yeah. It's about Uncertainty, unpredictability, lack of control. And then, okay, so right here, right now, what can I do with that anxiety? Do I deny it? Right? Do I talk about it? Do I go for a run? do I monitor my catastrophic thinking and say, Mark, you are making this shit up about the future. Like what the heck are you doing? <laughs> Which is what I tend to do. Like in you know, a stock, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to work until I'm 90. I'm, I'm going to lose all my money. The stock market going to crash or like no one is going to go back to work and the center's going to crumble. And then like, all right, Mark, like, where's that coming from? Right. So I never learned those strategies as a kid. No one taught me these things until I was with Uncle Marvin. And even he, you know, there wasn't a field called emotion regulation when he was a teacher. Yeah. It wasn't until I was in graduate school when I was studying emotional intelligence that I learned that like, gosh almighty, there's like, there's research. There's a thing called cognitive reappraisal. Like you can change the story you tell yourself. Like, Really? wow, that's incredible. Mm. And then if you practice it long enough, you get good at it. And so that's ruler. It's about recognizing, understanding, labeling, and then determining express, not express, regulate. And importantly, and I think, you know, for cross-cultural reasons in particular, is that there's no correctness with ruler. Unlike math and science, where it's like the right answer Mm. No such thing applies to our emotional life. That's why you got to be the emotion scientist, not the emotion judge in that, you know what the things that I may say to myself to reduce my anxiety and feel greater wellness may sound really weird to you. And that's fine. It works for me. So the goal of the emotion scientist is to help themselves and help everybody else find what works best for them. Mm -hmm. Not to be the knower and the teller. Mate, that's
1: that's fantastic. Uh, There's like the idea of coming in with humility and and you know all these constructs they can get quite complex in some ways because I think you know the field of emotions and frankly the field of all learning, the science of learning is is a complex field. But you know at the base of it, are I think a pretty simple idea is like listening, you know noticing. you know and so the idea of yeah. bringing ruler um, to work in schools and organizations, I think is incredibly powerful as, as a frame to use. I have a final question for you. Uh, and it's, you know, we've covered some ground in our conversation and, you know, I'm sure we could do another hour without any, any challenges whatsoever. But if you were to kind of, if you've learned anything on your journey, like what would you offer to listeners as a take home message about the role of emotions, you know, in our own lives, in our societies, um, what's your take home message to listeners?
0: I would say, don't be afraid to feel and, and just embrace the complexity, you know, of your own and other people's emotional lives and be the learner, not the knower. And when you're in that learning mode, right, you can be that compassionate emotion scientist. When you're in the knower mode, you're automatically making assumptions, you know, and judging, And so that's, I mean, for me, if I leave this earth and having had done one thing, it's to push this concept of permission to feel right. That this idea that we are feelings, creatures and beings that, and we have to honor and cherish those emotions and use them wisely to achieve our dreams.
1: Wow. Mark, Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation and for, you know, really pursuing this wonderful, urgent, important work. Thank you. To learn more about Mark's work, take a look at markbrackett, dot tcom and order the excellent book, Permission to Feel. And of course, for more on ruler and emotional intelligence, check out the the website at Yale University, ei.yale.edu. Thanks for listening to the
0: Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.